Well, that's the signal. Everybody back. Back to your places. Again, welcome to First Baptist Church. I'm so excited to be able to worship the Lord together with you, and it is a joy to be able to come together and, and worship God. We are in a Bible study, and we're going to continue in that Bible study. Um, the subject we're going to get into is a little heavy. It's interesting, though. Um, let me start out by just reminding us of some things. You know, in our country, we have some things that people argue a lot about. Um, we've, we've seen over the recent history that um, we can't have prayer in schools. Um, there are people who want to change the Pledge of Allegiance, right? So it doesn't say under God anymore. Um, you can't post the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. There are crosses torn down from public parks. Some would say we should remove in God we trust from our money. And when you go to court and you're going to swear, you don't put your hand on the Bible anymore to swear to tell the truth. And it's all done under the guise of separation of church and state. The idea that, which by the way is a core American value, right? Today it's perverted to try and defend keeping God out of all matters of public society life. But originally it was designed to keep the state out of the church's business. And the church was to have the freedom to do what the church is supposed to do. But let me just say, either way you look at it, we're all for the separation of church and state, are we not? So what we're doing now is we're walking through the history of the New Testament church from the time of the apostles until the time of the rapture of the church. And this is outlined for us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we've been taking a look at that, and, and we're calling it the prophecy of history because when it was written in 90 AD, it was prophecy. But from the vantage point of 2017, it's now history. And what we're doing is we're seeing what God has been doing throughout history from the time of the apostles. And we have come through several of the first churches already, Ephesus, Smyrna, last week, Pergamos. We know that these are seven literal churches that existed in the landmass now known as Turkey, then referred to as Asia or Asia Minor. Uh, we know that inspirationally, practically speaking, that they represent seven different kinds of churches, seven different kinds of challenges and problems that any local church anywhere might face at some point in their existence. But doctrinally, and this is the focus of what we are looking at, the, the specific doctrine or teaching of the Word of God is that these seven churches map out for us seven periods of church history. The 2,000 years of church history since the resurrection of Christ and the Acts of the Apostles until the rapture of the church is not a forgotten subject in the Bible. God has given us the outline in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And so in Ephesus, we saw the purposed church, and that went till about 200 A.D., Dates are relative, but around 200 A.D. Smyrna is the persecuted church, and that went on to about 325 A.D. Last week we saw Pergamos, which was referred to as the promiscuous church, which continued the history up until about 500 A.D., and today we're going to look at Thyatira. And Thyatira is the political church. It's the political church. 
Now, throughout this early history of the church, these first 500 and into 1,000 years, the Christian church is on a continual downward spiral. Uh, We read in Revelation 2 about Ephesus that they had a lot of great qualities. They would not tolerate people who called themselves Jews, but were not. People who were trying to appropriate the promises given exclusively to Israel for the church, they wouldn't tolerate that. But we get into Smyrna, and we find out that these people are now called to be a part of the what is called the synagogue of Satan. And then we get into Smyrna, excuse me, into Pergamos, and what we see in Pergamos is that Satan now actually has a seat in that church. But in Thyatira, by the time we're done, we're going to see that in Thyatira we have reached what is called the depths of Satan. The depths of Satan. You'll see that in verse 24. So last week we realized Satan understands throughout this 500 years of history that the more he tries to just persecute and kill Christian believers, the more the church grows. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Satan is not stupid. He figures out a plan. He figures out a way that now what he's going to do, he's going to counterfeit the church. He's going to join forces and deceive the people into thinking that the church that he's going to develop is legitimate. And the thing you need to understand as we walk through this today is that the true Christians that were alive back then and going through this had to have been so tired of seeing their loved ones slaughtered that any relief from the state was welcomed. It was welcomed. So what we're going to learn today, and I put this in an introduction in your notes, is the depths of Satan are the works of Satan at his core. It's religious deception. It's religious deception. It's the work of the devil primarily to use religion to make people think that they are okay when they are not, so that they will quit looking for the real answer. Religion can no more save you than any other world philosophy. In fact, in Colossians 2 and verse 8, the Bible makes it very clear that we are to beware of philosophies, vain deceit, just ideas of men that will deceive us into thinking that this is fine. And religion is nothing more than a branch in the study of philosophy. It's salvation by works. It's the theme of every world religion. Only biblical Christianity stands that your salvation is a free gift. Everyone else, no matter who they are and what they teach and how they, how they label the terms, say you have to work. You have to do enough good. You have to do more good than bad, and hopefully when you get to the end, God will be gracious and you'll have a place in his kingdom. Last week in the time of Pergamos, we saw that the church marries the world. And in Thyatira, the church then joins the political forces. It becomes political. 
So the development of Satan's counterfeit church is in full swing. It is a Roman church. And we're going to see the struggles of God's true children allowing this false church state system to influence their lives. This is a study of history, but it's a study of the Bible. And it is intended for us to beware. It's intended for us to take guard for our lives, as we will see by the time we are done. It is intended for us to understand the things that God wants us to understand so that we are not deceived in the ways that many of these people were at that time. If you'll follow along, I'm going to read in chapter 2 of Revelation, starting in verse 18. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works." But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not known this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father." And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And let's pray that. Heavenly Father, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit wants to say unto this church. May we see the things that you reveal in your book of the Revelation the things that you teach us about the reality of the history of that time as we are approaching the, the church that describes the history of our time. That we would see how you have moved throughout history and how the devil has countered your moves like a chess match. And may we see your hand more than anything else working so that we can always recognize your hand, but like anyone good at battle, we have to recognize the enemy's hand as well. So may you give us eyes to see and understanding and ears to hear but maybe most importantly, hearts that would be willing to submit and surrender to whatever it is you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First point, we have a general outline we're following every week. The outline is consistent throughout each of the seven churches, so we're just going to continue to follow this outline. The first point is the church being called. The name of the church is Thyatira. If we were to translate that, basically it means this, odor of affliction. An aroma, an odor of affliction. And so, this is the affliction of a sacrifice. This is the odor, the aroma that comes for those Christian believers who are being sacrificed. 
it's not the perspective of those offering the sacrifice. It's those who become the literal sacrifice. And like the Old Testament sacrifices and some of the offerings that were burned on the altar of incense, it becomes a sweet-smelling savor to our God. At this time, not unlike previous times, true believers are continually being sacrificed. In fact, the very name Thyatira is a compound word which literally means continual sacrifice. Believers just continue to be sacrificed for their stand in the truth. But it also has to have a nuance of understanding because this false counterfeit church is a church that will set up a system that every Sunday a man stands in front and offers a sacrifice continually every week week after week, week after week. So the time frame of this history is from about 500 to about 1000 A.D., and that's commonly referred to as the Dark Ages, the beginning of what is referred to as the Dark Ages. Now, if you are young and you've been through school and you've studied history from about 500 to 1500 A.D., what used to be called when I was in school the Dark Ages, for you now we have to clean it up politically, and we can't call it dark anymore. Uh, that's too negative. So we're going to call it the Middle Ages, right? We can't call it B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. We have to call it B.C.E., before the Common Era. And C.E., you young kids you know in school, that's what they do now, the Common Era. They want to eliminate Jesus. It's separation of church and state. <laughs> but now they call it the Middle Ages. And what they did for you was a favor. Because if it's the Middle right? If it's the middle, and it started 500 years after Christ, they dated for you the end. If the middle is a thousand, the end is around 2,000. Got any long-range plans? (laughs) It's dark. Oh, it's marked by these events, and there are key events in history that mark this time. Why did we pick these dates? Well, a lot of people study and try and figure out key events in history that are turning points. So about 500 A.D., there was a man named Justinian, Justinian I, who would have been the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, right? And and he tries to reunite the pagan Roman Empire around 500 A.D. And around 1000 A.D., the time frame that will put an end to Thyatira, what we have is the official split between the Roman Church in Western Europe and the Orthodox Church, which will be the Eastern branch and the twin sister, we might say, of the Roman Church. That'll be around 1000 A.D. But this time is dark. And the reason that it's dark is because of Psalm 119 and 130. They have removed the light. Psalm 119 and 130 tells us that it's the Word of God, the entrance of thy words, right? Give light. And so when you take the Word of God out of people's lives, well, the light goes out. You could say it's replaced with a black light. You could say that this is one of the darkest times in the history of man. So by now, this system of this Roman church, and by the time 500 rolls around, is in full swing. And it's beginning to take official form. Can I just say to all of us to remind us of something, and I should remind myself to do this every single week, that when we are studying what we are studying of the history of this 
counterfeit church that the devil has set up. It is a religious system designed to deceive people, and it is a Roman church. We are speaking of the system of this religion. We are not speaking of individuals that you might know who are nice people who follow the system fully unaware of the history of their system. Uh, The devil's job is to deceive people. We all have friends and people that we know or care for or have known that are wonderful people that have no idea. They are not demonic people. They're wonderful people. But like so many people in the world of any kind of religion or atheism, they're just deceived. They just don't understand. We have no bone to pick with people. We love people. We want to help people. That's why we're here. But there is a system, and it has a source, and we need to know about it. And that's what we're talking about. So one of the things I want you to see as this is being developed throughout the ages, I'm just going to roll off some events and some dates. You don't need to worry about jotting it down. Just listen. You can find these things online yourself. So about 312 A.D., we see the introduction. We're going to see in these dates that I give you the introduction of these new doctrines and teachings that are coming out of this church. Around 300 to 312, the symbol of the cross becomes predominant. Uh, The baptism of infants in order to remove original sin around 300. Around 300, they begin to pray prayers for the dead. Around 375, they institute the worship of angels and the worship of saints, people who were alive, who have passed, and now they make them, they venerate them into saints. And about 394, they have the official establishment of the Mass. About 431, they instituted the worship of Mary, the mother of God, supposedly. In 593, we're kind of crossing into Thyatira now. We have the doctrine of purgatory, that place where people go when they die if they're not fully saved yet, and it's kind of like a holding tank, supposedly, that if your faithful loved ones who are still alive go and pay enough money, then they can get you out. That's a handy system. So the prayers go to Mary in about 600 A.D. A little after that, in the next decade, we have the establishment of the papal throne. There's a pope. He sits on a throne. 786, the worship of religious icons and statues used as aids in worship. 850, the use of holy water. 995, the canonizing of these dead saints. And 1079, the celibacy of the priesthood. So little by little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The church is developing into an entity that is very superstitious and joins herself to the political state powers. And anyone who's not obeying these things was persecuted if they could be found and sometimes killed. This is the beginning of actually stopping the spread of biblical Christianity. The devil has found the thing that works because just killing them incensed them so much to tell more and more people more quickly and more quickly because they're going to kill me eventually. I've got to get the word out to others before it's too late. Let's make them all comfortable and they will stop telling everybody else. Hello. That's the way the church is introduced. That's the name. That's what it means. Roman numeral two, Jesus Christ is characterized. In each case, he's introduced a unique way. He's introduced in such a way that it is a response to what is going on at that time of history. He reminds them of who he is. 
And the first thing he reminds them is that he is the entitled heir. Jesus Christ is the heir apparent. He is the one who is entitled all of the glory and the honor and the power. It says, these things saith the Son of God. And you would hear that, you would read that, and you would just pass right by it. You would think, of course he's the Son of God. Why would he introduce himself as the Son of God? Everybody knows that he's the Son of God. Who's arguing the fact that he is the Son of God? That's a very generic introductory statement, wouldn't you think? Why would he choose to introduce himself to Thyatira as the Son of God? Well, he's doing it in distinction against the counterfeit sons of God that sit on a throne and rule the nations. In other words, he's pointing out the Pope is not the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. And during this time when all the Popes are being promoted and held up as the very representative Son of God on earth, and you say, well, when did that ever happen? When did they ever call themselves the Son of God? Well, so I gave you some help in your notes. Any pope throughout history has been called the vicarious son of God. Vicarious, in the place of. They are God's one sole human representation of Jesus Christ on earth, according to them. That's who the pope is. He's God's representative. He stands as literally the vicarious Son of God. And Jesus Christ said, These things saith the Son of God. I am the Son of God. Life was carried about, especially religious life at that time, in Latin. Vicarious Son of God in Latin comes out to be, I won't say it right, vicarius filidei. That's how it is. It is the inscription that is written on the crown that the popes would wear on their head. If you take the Roman numeral system, and you know some of the letters of the alphabet in the the Roman alphabet also represent numbers. And if you look at the way, and I put this in your notes, vicarious filidae, the U becomes a V. The way the Romans would have written it, the U becomes a V. So vicarius filidae, you add up the letters that are actually numbers, Lo and behold, they add up to 666. You say, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because of Revelation 13 and verse number 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of who? The beast. This is the tribulation. This is the Antichrist. He has a number. For it's the number of a man, an actual man on the planet. And his number is 600, three score, and six. So you kids don't know what a score is. A score is 20. Three scores make 60. 600, three score, 60, and six. So everybody's afraid if your license plate number happens to be 666. You're worried if your phone number happens to be traded in for a new phone number. Don't be afraid. It's okay. It's just a number for us. It's okay. But that man is numbered. And may I say his days are numbered. Because Satan always, always, you got to get this, always wants authority. He always wants the power. 
Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, from the very beginning of his fall, he was Lucifer, the anointed cherub. And what happened when Lucifer sinned? Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will be, notice the word, like the Most High, the vicarious Son of God, who is the representative who will rule over all of the others, who sits on a throne and wears a crown, whose letters add up to 666. There's an important event that took place and it deals with a man in history that if you don't know anything about, I encourage you to go and read a little about. His name was Charlemagne. Charlemagne is just the French version of Charles the Great. Charles the Great was a king. He was a king of the Franks in Europe at that time and in the late 700s leading up until 800 and he was a powerful world leader and actually he was so powerful that you got to understand when the pagan Roman Empire was crumbling and Satan makes this switch where he begins to switch the power he will exercise from Rome instead of being just a pagan political power, he makes it a religious papal power. When he does that, the, 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 the general Roman Empire is, is splintered into groups now. And Europe's control is kind of up for grabs. And Charles the Great is so powerful and wise, he literally could have, on his own accord, with his own forces, taken over the greater part of Europe without needing to mess with the Roman Catholic Church. But he didn't do that. And this event that happened on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., is so significant, it changed the way everybody thought. Because Charles the Great goes into Rome, and he goes into St. Peter's Basilica, and he kneels down to pray, and who comes up behind him while he's down praying? He allows the Pope, Pope Leo III, comes up and crowns him, and crowns him then to be not just the King of the Franks, but he crowns him as the emperor of all the Romans, wherever they might be, which marks the beginning officially of what is known as the Holy Roman Empire. It's no longer the pagan Roman Empire. Now it's the Holy Roman Empire. Some people refer to this as the First Reich. You've heard of the Third Reich with Hitler, right? So the Second Reich is Germany and their forces in World War I. The Third Reich, Hitler ascribed to himself. All of these are references to the idea that we are ushering in the millennium. Okay, they're all anti-Christ. But the first Reich is referred to as the Holy Roman Empire. As such, Charlemagne, rather than just doing it on his own, willingly submits to the religious power crowning him, and he then joins the political and religious into one. I want you to understand that what happened when that happened? Everybody knew the kings are now crowned by popes. Kings are crowned by popes. It was said of Charles at that time that he was crowned by God. Oh, really? So you're trying to say that Leo is God. 
So the political arm, what we would refer to as the kingdom of heaven, and the religious arm, the kingdom of God, are now working together to rule the world. And can I say the religious arm wins? (laughs) Because the one who crowns, of course, is greater than the one who is crowned. The one who has the authority to place the crown has more authority than the one who receives the crown. And that was all set up on Christmas Day, not surprisingly, 800 A.D., in the middle of Thyatira. Let's look at the next thing. He introduces himself not just as the Son of God, as the heir that's entitled, but let her be the executor of judgment. And so he goes on and he describes himself, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire. And you can look at some of the references we have there, Revelation 1, 14, Revelation 19, and verse number 12. This is the view of Jesus Christ and his glory. This is the view of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth, about to set up his kingdom, before which he must judge the unbelievers. Eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass. Well, that's mentioned as well in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 15. This is the glorified Christ. But what you need to understand about that is, is that fire and brass represent God's judgment. That's what they represent. God judges with fire, and brass is always associated with judgment. Go back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Out in the outer court, what was out there? There was a brazen altar, an altar made of brass, Exodus 27. That was for the animal sacrifices. The animals were sacrificed and killed. In other words, God's judgment was placed on the animal, so it didn't have to be placed on the Israelites. Brass. There was a brass laver then that the priests had to go to, and so it was like like a big wash pot, and it was made of brass, and it was finely polished, and it was filled with water, and the priests would then wash themselves, and it is a great picture and type of the Word of God. Because we have in James chapter 1, 23 to 25, that the word of God is likened unto a glass, a looking glass, a mirror, finely polished brass with water on top. You look down into it and you see your own reflection like you do when you look at your own reflection in the very word of God. It is a form of judgment. It is a form of cleansing. The water, Ephesians 5, 25, the washing of the water of the word of God. So it's always associated with judgment. Moses puts a serpent of brass up on a pole. Why? Because it's judgment. God has judged the Israelites for their sin in the wilderness and murmuring against God and against Moses and all his provision. So he sends these serpents to bite them and they're about to die. And he puts this serpent of brass up on a pole that if they will look at it, they will live. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ taking your judgment for you. The feet of Jesus Christ of brass are going to stamp out sin upon his return. He will judge rightly. That's how he's presented to the church at Thyatira. So let's talk a little bit about the church's condition. Number three, every church, it says, I know thy works. The first thing that we see about this church, it's a practicing church. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more Then the first, praise the Lord. This is obviously a working church. Remember, this is written to the true church. This is not a letter written to the false church. 
It's a letter written to the true church. They did a lot of good things. The fact that it says, I know your charity, you check the other six. There is not one other church in the other six that is praised for their charity, like this one is. Remember Ephesus, the purpose church? What's the one thing they didn't do right? They left their first love. They left their first love. This church did some good things. There's some good guys during this time, and some of them were called all kind of different names. Paulicians, so named because of their reliance on Paul's writings for their doctrine. They founded local churches based on the literal belief in the Bible. There's other groups, Bogomiles, Catherai, Praetorines. There's a man who was a Catholic priest, actually, that came up, and you might want to look him up. He's called the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E. The Venerable Bede was a guy who was raised a Catholic priest, but he used the Antiochian texts and corrected the errors in Jerome's Latin Bible. And a lot of these people were involved in winning people to Christ and starting churches, especially if they got outside of Europe and they went into Africa and they went into Asia and India. So it was a practicing church, and praise the Lord for that. But the thing that we get a lot of press in this text is about is letter B, and it's a passive church. It's a passive church. Notwithstanding, so we're contrasting the good thing. I have a few things against thee, church. Why? Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. So who is Jezebel? We could literally spend a whole Sunday just studying Jezebel. I'm going to give you about a minute and a half review. So if you're interested, under what is Jeze- who is Jezebel, you have a list of a whole bunch of scriptures. I encourage you to go and read them. I encourage you to check it out and see for yourself. Listen, man, don't believe me. Check it out. See what God said about who this woman Jezebel is. Well, let me tell you who she is. She's the wife of the wicked King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. She's the daughter of the king of the Zidonians, which is located in the northern portion of Israel. It's the area of Phoenicia, and the Zidonians are known for serving Baal. Zidon, the city on the coast, is where the tribe of Dan settled, of the 12 tribes. Dan, among the tribes, is called a lion's whelp and a serpent. And the, the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and the serpent first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 is a reference to the devil. Dan is not your favorite tribe. What does Dan do? Well, you go in the book of Judges and that reference, Dan hires a young man to be their priest. And that priest is called a father. And Phoenician Baal worship includes priests that are called fathers that wear long black robes and cut and mutilate themselves to do penance to get what they want from God. They bake cakes to the queen of heaven, check the references in Jeremiah, a female deity. And they worship the sun god, Baal, on Sunday, whose birthday is December 25th, celebrated with a tree that's cut up out of the forest and decorated. Now you can get mad all you want. These are the historic references to what the Bible reveals for us. These are the associations that the historic Jezebel has associated with her name. 
as the wife of King Ahab. He was the political power. She was the inspiration. She called the shots, and he did what she said. In other words, he was the head of the nation. She was the neck. Ever reminding all of us the evil nature of wives taking that role. She's the inspiration. She's the power behind the political figure. That's who she is. And she calls herself a prophetess, which means she proposes to speak for God. Therefore, Thyatira, there is a church that is the inspiration to the reigning political power of that day. She's also pictured as the strange woman. Take some time and stroll through the book of Proverbs. Who is the strange woman? Well, she's a harlot. She stands on the street corners and she beckons to the men, turn my way, come in to me and lay with me. That strange woman is a religious system. And ultimately she's revealed to be in the tribulation, Revelation 17 and Revelation 18, a mystery. Mystery Babylon the Great. The, not just a harlot, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. You see, what she does is she's teaching them to commit fornication. Spiritual fornication, that is, with the kings of the earth, it says in Revelation. It says that her colors are purple and scarlet, that she has a golden cup. It says that she's actually a city, and that city sits on seven hills. She says that within her is the blood of the martyrs, or God says that the blood of the martyrs are inside of her. For reference, see the catacombs. God calls all true believers in Revelation 18 to come out from her. Come out. So in your notes, I put it this way. The rebuke for the real believers in Thyatira is because they tolerated the Catholic Church's teaching. That's the rebuke. Because thou sufferest, that means you allowed that woman Jezebel. What did she do? To teach and to seduce deceive my servants to commit spiritual harlotry. You put up with it. She taught people to do it. And you were passive. You let it happen. You know what that is? That's the doctrine of Balaam. You go back last week, the doctrine of Balaam. That's spiritual fornication. That's going after other gods. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Jesus Christ. Teaching the bride to intentionally go after other gods that are not Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of Balaam, and that's what the church is teaching. If it's teaching, it's doctrine. If it's teaching and doctrine, it comes from a book. So they have their book. And Jerome made his Latin Vulgate, 50 copies delivered to Constantine of the changes that Origen made in Alexandria of Egypt, in North Africa, and sent to Constantine. They're all in Latin. Nobody else had copies. Very few people speak Latin. In fact, very few priests speak Latin. No Bibles are available to the common men, so there's no light. The doctrine of Balaam. But not just that, they taught the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15 of that chapter. So the teaching has to come from men because the common people don't have Bibles. 
So these are men who say they represent God, but obviously they don't because what they say is in direct contradiction to what the Bible says, but the people don't know that because they don't have Bibles. So this is the setting up of a priest class, which is set above the common man, the laity, for the purpose of controlling him, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, because the devil wants to defile anything that is holy, so he instructs the church to commit spiritual fornication with false gods, saints. What else does she teach? She teaches the doctrine of the Eucharist. It says in the text, then, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, that's the mass. That's the wafer. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 21, talks about the communion of the Lord's table. It talks about the cup, and it talks about the bread, and talks about how those things are compromised with idols. And if you look down to verses 20 and 21, it says this, But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice in the context meaning unbelievers, sacrifice. They sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that she should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So early on, we have this establishment of the mass and the creeds, the Apostles' Creed. And I believe in the saints' communion and Although officially as a doctrine, this idea of transubstantiation becoming literally the wafer is literally Christ's body in a magical transformation. This is what the church teaches today. And literally the cup of wine becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. That happened about 1200 A.D., really into the next church period. Nevertheless, it was all coming along. How do they get that? Will they get that? How do the Catholics, I mean, where does that come from? Well, it comes from John chapter 6. So I want you to look with me in John chapter 6. I'm going to read a little bit about where they get this idea. Jesus is speaking, starting in verse number 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him as the living father has sent me and I live by the father so he that eateth me even he shall live by me that is an odd statement and the disciples were kind of freaking out as it is apparent as we continue to read but so Jesus is saying this thing and they're thinking what in the world is he talking about cannibalism that is explicitly stated as forbidden in the old testament what in the world is he talking about well, we are those who have learned to understand the Bible literally unless it is impossible to do so otherwise. And when it is impossible to do so, God himself will define for us the illustration as he defines for us this illustration if we would just keep reading. So let's do that. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. He is referring to himself. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself, his disciples murmured at it. He said unto them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Here's the key, y'all. Verse 63 It is the spirit that quickeneth or brings life. 
the flesh profiteth nothing. I'm not talking about literally eating my flesh. It's the spirit that brings life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. There's your biblical cross-reference. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who there were that believed not and who should betray him. And he, um, and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. And so we understand that he says, just as I live by the Father. Did Jesus eat the Father? No. It is an illustration. It is, it is to help us understand the point of what we're to do in responding to him by faith according to his word. So this becomes an official doctrine. And the people begin to tolerate it. But I want you to notice in verse 21, back in Revelation, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Man, God is good. What a wicked, evil, blasphemous affront to the holiness of our righteous Lord. And he did not just immediately sweep in and destroy because he loves the human beings that were deceived under the devil's deception. And he gave her space to repent. You could say that space was from 325 to 500. You could say it continued later. But grace is amazing, y'all. Even Jezebel got grace. She had a chance. So the church is practicing. The church is passive. We've got to move on. The church is also plagued. The church is plagued. Some of the worst judgments ever dealt out by God in the modern era. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. That is a bed of judgment. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. And I will kill her children with death. So in your notes, God's judgment of death came via the bubonic plague, the plague of Justinian around 540 A.D., and the Black Death of Europe in the 14th century. Look it up. I mean, look it up. Show yourself approved. Be a workman. Check it out. This Black Death affected the Western Kingdom. Justinian's plague affected the Eastern Kingdom. It is estimated that about 25 million people were killed by this plague. By the way, in case you're saying, well, that leads into the next church era, it does say, I will kill her children with death. So it started in 506th century. It rolls all the way into the 14th century, not continually, but in instances. Estimated to have killed 25 million people, commonly referred to by people in that day as the hand of God. The hand of God. Some people even thought, erroneously, but thought this might be the fulfillment of the fourth horse of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6, where a quarter of the population of the world is destroyed. So sometime later, somebody decided that, hey, I know, let's write a nursery rhyme. So they come up with, ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down written to illustrate the black death in Europe. As you get red, splotchy sores through the plague and ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies like the flowers that are laid on your grave as ashes go back to ashes and dust goes back to dust and we all fall down dead. Nursery rhymes are a funny thing. 
And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. The reins are literally your kidneys. You have kidney failure, you have renal failure. It's the innermost parts of who you are. The idea is the Lord Jesus Christ searches and knows your innermost feelings and desires and judges accordingly. And he says, I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Basically what he's saying is, listen, if you're counting on your works to save you, you've fallen from the principle that grace saves you. And that's what it says in Galatians 5.4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you think you're going to get your justification by the law? Well, you've fallen from the idea of grace. You can't have it both. If it's of grace, it can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not grace. So if that's the way you want to roll, well, that's the way you're going to be judged. And the last thing I want to see that we'll see in this text is that they're also persevering church. At least this is his counsel to those who are hanging on. He says, but unto you I say and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this evil doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you that are hanging out, that are staying strong, I'll put on you none other burden. Man, you've got plenty on your plate. If you haven't given in yet, man, just hang in there. But that which you have already, hold fast until I come to get you. And so what he's saying is, don't lose what you've already earned. Don't go backwards. Because it is possible to go backwards, y'all. 2 John, one little chapter, verse number 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. There is a risk that you have lived faithfully for the Lord for a time. You have earned some level of rewards and inheritance in His kingdom, and you totally fall away from that, and you lose those things that you had previously earned because He wants you to be faithful all the way to the end of your life. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, it's always about the doctrine, hath not God, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son, And if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't wish him well. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. So God says, man, if you've been resisting and hanging on, just keep hanging on. Stand. Isn't that what we're supposed to do against the devil? Stand. That's what he says. Lastly, the church celebration. We'll go through this quickly. He that overcometh, this is about rewards, and keepeth my works unto the end. That's what we just saw. You're going to get some rewards. Letter A, governmental authority, power over the nations. Here's some rewards. If you're an overcomer in the time of Thyatira, power over the nations. A position of authority in Christ's governmental structure. If you look at Luke 19, 16, and 17, that's what you're going to see. The man is faithful, doing what the Lord asks, He's faithful with the 10 pounds, so God makes him a ruler over 10 cities. Direct proportion to your faithfulness, you will be rewarded in some governmental authoritative position in his millennial kingdom. You can look at Luke 16, 10 to 12 on your own. Let's go to the next one. Letter B, military authority. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Why? Why is this a reward? To be a part of his government and to rule them with a rod of iron. Because they've endured being ruled by this evil religious political force. 
So part of their reward, special to them, will be to be able to rule by force. As Jesus Christ returns and the church returns with him to rule over the nations of the earth for a thousand years, so will the overcomers of Thyatira rule with him. And when people of the millennial kingdom rebel, and they will rebel, there will be swift judgment with physical repercussions. And can I just say unto you, if any of you have ever lived under a totally corrupt, dictatorial setup, I have. You long for the day that it might be your turn. I know that a lot of us Americans think that our nation is to that point and it's so evil here and it's so terrible and the things that they're doing in Washington, okay, it's not great. Can I tell you? It's not that. Not yet. Maybe sometime in the future, I don't know. Not yet. We still got it good, y'all. We still got it good. But if you've ever lived through the oppressive government situation that you have no line of repercussion, you have no way to fight, you have no way to go to an independent court system, you have no way to have any recourse, all you can hope for is in the Lord and that one day maybe it'll be your turn. And that's why he says that to Thyatira. As the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken to shivers. And those references that you can look up, Psalm 2, Isaiah 30, man, those are all about the way God is going to come and to judge with the rod of iron. I do want to look at the reference in Daniel 2. Daniel 2, verse 40 and 41, because this is Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image that represent the four Gentile nations that will rule Gentile history until the time of the end, not the time of the first coming of Jesus Christ, until the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it starts with Babylon, and it's replaced by Media Persia, and it's replaced by Greece, and that is replaced by Rome. And Rome is clearly the one that was in charge when Jesus showed up the first time, and let me just tell you, he's the one that's going to be in charge when Jesus shows up the second time. And he says, Daniel 2, 40 and 41, And the fourth kingdom, this Roman kingdom, shall be as strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And so this image has two legs and ten toes on the feet that are the final ten-nation confederacy under the control of Rome. And Jesus says, even as I have received of my Father. You're going to get these things faithful in Thyatira because you have overcome in the same exact way that I have overcome, resisting an evil, fleshly, selfishly controlled religious state system under the hand of the Pharisees and the Jews. And the last reward is a spiritual authority where he says, notice, I will give him the morning star. The morning star. That's the day star. That's Jesus Christ himself. He's the son of righteousness that brings in the dawn of the new day in the morning of the millennial kingdom. In case you think that that was just poetic and beautiful but not accurate, 
Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Spiritual authority. That's the overview of Thyatira. We just covered 500 years of history in less than an hour. Could never do it justice. Hopefully it sparks your interest, but really what you need to know before we leave, don't pack up yet. How can I apply this to my life today? Because every church ends with this statement, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Plural. Today. Do you know that of the seven churches of Asia Minor, historically, Thyatira, by far, was the smallest little town. It was kind of a nothing little town, like a little blue-collar, labor-centered town. The other cities had some population. They were trade centers. They were big commerce places. Thyatira is just kind of a little nothing little town, just a quiet little spot. And yet the letter to the Thyatira church has more scripture. It has 12 verses. No other church has given so much text as Thyatira because of what they did, because what they shouldn't do. It's actually a type and a picture of the Corinthian church. Read 1 Corinthians. Always being corrected for something. You know what I think that God's trying to teach us? Hey, small church in a small town. Hey, blue-collar, nice, small, comfortable little town that seemingly isn't on anybody's radar. God's still paying attention. And you know what you can be? You can be a bad example for a whole lot of other people. Or you can be a good one. You can be a good one, right? He's watching. You know what he doesn't want us to do? You know what we can learn from Thyatira? Don't tolerate sin. Don't tolerate false doctrine. Don't do it. Don't stand for it. Uh, you're kind of, you know, you just kind of got your world. You don't, nobody really messes with you. You don't really mess with anybody. Hey, so what, man? We're just, you know, I'm tired of fighting. Yeah, well, somebody's watching. So the overcomers, what, what can you do? How can this apply to me? How about this? Stand for personal holiness and stand for sound doctrine. Even when it's not popular to do so, y'all, God is watching and he wants to see. Listen, you can decide for yourself as an individual because the issue of the overcomer, it's not church-wide. It's individuals that will decide, this is what I will do. So you decide for you. But I'm going to lead this church to not stand for sin. And I'm going to lead this church to not tolerate doctrinal impurity. And we're going to teach it like it says. And if there's consequences, there's consequences. I pray there isn't. But that's what we're going to do. But you know what? The decision now, as we pack up and pray, is what will you do? Because God said this to the churches for a reason, that we would learn something. So let's pray together.